Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. The Other People Podcast is a free show. All episodes are offered freely, more than 500 and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm very pleased to have Sloane Crosley back on the program for a second time. She is celebrating the publication of a new essay collection. It is called Look Alive Out There. It is critically acclaimed. Uh, Steve Martin, the comedian, blurbed it. What do you think about that? Again, it's called Look Alive Out There. Sloan Crosley and I in conversation in just a second. Uh, I do have some mail. A listener named Joseph says, Brad, my four-year-old wants to know what your favorite part of something is. I know that's terrible, and he refuses to specify what the something is. Signed, Joseph. trying to think like my favorite part of uh, school when I was growing up I liked 8th grade a lot I felt like I did well in 8th grade it was just a good year for me I felt like something about my uh, sense of humor or my sensibility it meshed well with being in 8th grade there were ninth graders at my school like it went like 6 through 9 so we had like a grade above us, which made things sort of exciting. And then we had two grades below us, which gave us a certain level of seniority. I also like the scene in Empire Strikes Back when uh, Princess Leia says, I love you, and Han Solo says, I know. I feel like everybody likes that scene. I really like that scene. I like that part of Empire Strikes Back and that part of the Star Wars saga. I like the uh, moment in the song Bohemian Rhapsody where there's a pause in between, uh, like it's like when Freddie Mercury says, nothing really matters. Anyone can see nothing really matters. And then there's that pause. And then he goes to me. I like that pause. You know what I'm talking about? You will one day. 
Joseph's four-year-old. I appreciate the question. Lucas in Seattle writes, Dear Brad Listy, I was thinking about ingesting media and the effect that it has on us. I was thinking that maybe our inner voice is more malleable and fluid than we probably think. Like, we're just these amorphous beings that are constantly being reshaped by our sensory input. And then I was thinking that maybe that correlates with why you can write something one day and think it's brilliant and read it the next day and find it ridiculous. It's not the writing that has changed. It's the way that you're interpreting the world that has changed. I thought I should write this down and email it to you now because when I read this tomorrow, it will sound stupid. Signed, Lucas in Seattle, where marijuana is legal. Okay, Lucas. Well, I appreciate your note. I think it's a good thought. And if you're concerned about you know, how it came across, if you really were stoned when you wrote it, I think you should feel good about yourself. I feel like it holds up. I feel like it's a worthy thought to consider. Ingestion of media, how it might change our perspective on our own creative work. It brings to mind, to me anyway, how we are ever-changing as uh, human beings. All of us, some weird combination of uh, many different processes, all of which are constantly in flux. And yet somehow, you know, some of us anyway, are able to produce books. We're able to complete long-form book projects and maintain a certain steadiness of mind and spirit and a sense of unity over a long period of time. It's not easy. And, you know, I think ultimately, obviously, you bring all the changes that are happening every single second of every single day of every week of every year. You bring that change to the project inevitably. But there does have to be some sort of organizing principle or some set of organizing principles if you're going to get a book done. And it has to drive you through all of that change. It has to be, like a, you know, it has to be a steadying force, a constant So maybe that's the question. Where do you get that constant? I don't know. I should also tell you, uh, Lucas, that uh, marijuana is legal in Los Angeles, just like it is in Seattle. And with that in mind, I feel like sharing that I recently went to a dispensary for the first time in my life. Which may come as a surprise to some of you. I've never been to a dispensary before all these years. So it's like Saturday night, 10 PM. I go into this place. It's kind of sketchy in Hollywood. I can't say that I was entirely comfortable. There's like these like leather couches everywhere. They're ripped. It smells like weed. The lighting is bad and fluorescent. Everyone in there is like fucked up. Either they were drunk or stoned or both, but people were like visibly wasted. And <laughs> on top of it, there is a, and like you have to go to the window and give your driver's license and then you sit there. It's like a waiting room. They call your name and then they let you go in to shop. It's not like a normal retail experience, which I think is what I was expecting. But I, uh, I go in there, I check in at the, at the little glass window. I sit down on the couch, kind of waiting my turn, I'm sort of dressed like a normcore uh, dad. I'm sober, sitting there in the dispensary. Everyone's wasted. It kind of felt like I was sticking out a little bit, a little self-conscious. I'm looking at my phone. I'm reading Twitter. I look over. 
and there's a security guard standing there and he's visibly high like really fucking stoned <laughs> and he's uh he's wearing a, like a bulletproof vest and then like this couple comes in it's like a guy and, and you know his wife or his girlfriend and the guy is holding an unneutered bulldog under his arm like luggage they're both like super baked and they're standing like right in front of me so I'm sitting on the couch this guy's holding a bulldog if you can picture this and the dog's balls are like dangling <laughs> uh, you know it was just it was a lot to process and I'm looking at the security guard and I'm like I don't know if I want to see a man in Kevlar or, or a woman in Kevlar who is baked I don't know if I like that combination like one or the other you know like either wear the bulletproof vest or smoke pot but don't do both at the same time that's a bad look it's confusing hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Sloane Crosley. Her new essay collection is called Look Alive Out There. It's available from MCD Books. This is Sloane's second time on the show, and uh, just great to catch up with her. She was so much fun to talk with, and I'm very happy to see her having all of this publication success. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sloane Crosley, and her collection, one more time, is called Look Alive Out There. The ones I really want to read, I can't because they're way too long. Oh, right. Um, but there are these sort of interstitial, I can never really say that word correctly, um, these essays in between, these sort of shorter palate cleanser kind of essays, or they're actually more like appetizers, if we're going to use a food analogy, for the essays that follow. Right. So like these thematically connected shorter essays in advance of the longer ones. And they work by themselves. So this is the first time I've ever read two, which sounds really indulgent, except it takes 15 minutes. Right. So, right. Yeah. So which are the ones that you would want to read if you could? Like, what are the essays that you feel like really um, are, I guess, the strongest work in the collection? I mean, well, not necessarily the strongest, although I guess this is a form of strength is is how well um, the, the humor is paced. So that's certainly a form of strength. Um, but the ones that I think would play well to an audience, I just don't want them to be 
you know, no matter how funny it is, start thinking about, you know, their grocery lists, um, outside voices where I become sort of, it, it builds in this way that, I mean, I read the audiobook and I could feel it in the audiobook that it builds in this way where I really crack and lose it at my teenage neighbors in a way that's extremely elaborate, <laughs> um, that I know, and I know where it's funny. Um, although having said that, I don't always know. I'm amazed what people laugh at and what they don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's the thing it's there. So it's not mine anymore. Right. I mean, usually it's the stuff that they're meant to laugh at. And honestly, the, uh, the problem of someone laughing at something I don't find that funny is no problem at all compared to no one laughing at something I find funny. Unless you like intended it as like uh, dramatic. Like, that happened to me in, as a college film student where I made a horror movie that oh, everyone, no. everyone thought it was a comedy. Like Rocky Horror. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like such a lesson in humiliation because I kind of I kind of half-assed it. Yeah. And, you know, and I just wasn't any good. And like it, it was a student film. But I remember sitting there in like the screening, just like shrinking in my seat, like, oh my God, they think it's a comedy. They laughed at it. The, there's an essay that I've been reading. I sort of, um, I have a, a steady essay that I've been reading, which is called Our Hour is Up, just because it takes the right amount of time. And then there's usually sort of a blank and scrabble essay that gets filled in, you know, just to mix it up for me. Um, but for Our Hour is Up, which is hard to say out loud yeah. repeatedly, yeah. five times fast. Let's try, let's try to keep doing that if we can. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, there's a moment in which I, um, get in trouble for putting posters up all over my elementary school with the principal. Um, but the posters were advertising my services as a, a nine-year-old therapist. And I got in trouble and therefore getting in trouble, um, called attention to the posters, called attention to my sort of, uh, not-for-profit therapy practice. Right. And therefore I actually had, you know, my peers come up to me and ask me questions the way they might not have, if I hadn't, put the posters up, but there's a line where I say, this is the moment in which I learned that all publicity is good publicity. Everyone laughs uproariously at this. I don't find it funny at all. No, I feel it's like definitely not a humor note. It's just sort of a bridge. But I, you know, the, the, the first thing it made me think of was Trump. I, I, maybe oh, no. I could say that about anything, but like that to me is like all publicity is good publicity taken to like the nth degree. Right. Well, so to your point, the next line is, or, well, I learned the adage. I don't actually think it's true. Right. <laughs> um, but it is, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not going to uh, kick a, a laugh I didn't invite in out of bed. Well, and also, uh, I feel like your principal needs to get checked. Like, yeah. Like, this happened, it happened to me when I was a kid. I tried to start a school newspaper when I was in third grade with oh. my buddies. And, like, yet it was, like, sort of a tabloid. <laughs> or, like, there was a, <laughs> Was it a broadsheet format? <laughs> I mean, no, this was, like, your I'm, I'm so old. It was, like, we were typing it on a typewriter in my friend's dad's like off basement office and then using his copy machine and we like photocopied and stapled, but it was like the Thorson so just, just the ingenuity for third grade is really on, impressive. We, we sold it you on the sold playground. It, so you have a better sense. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't charge. doing shit for free, <laughs> <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> but anyway, we got reprimanded. I got sent to the principal's office and I feel like probably for selling it. Well, that's probably the part 25 cents. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could you could say, "Hey, guys, you can't do that." But it wasn't. It something does strike to... me as a very elaborate version of "Don't color outside the lines," yeah. and then you know those kids actually are not sociopaths. They turn out to be the great artists of our time, and we well. should encourage the coloring <laughs> outside the lines. I would hope. Now, did you did you like you harbor resentment towards your principal? Did this wound you at all to get in trouble? No, there. There, I am actually. I am for someone who dishes it out. I do. I am easily wounded in certain ways, but more by like childhood things. There are certain. You know, later on in that same essay, 
there's a, a little boy who I have a big crush on, um, which sounds weird. Just as a reminder, I am also a little girl. <laughs> I just realized sounds funky. Let's move past it. But um, you can't let go, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, he stays the same age. No, uh, but he like saunters up to this rock where I'm sitting and giving advice. And he's like, like Socrates. Oh God. He saunters like Socrates. Oh yeah. No, I'm Socrates. Yeah, You're on the rock. I still have such a crush on him that he gets to be Socrates. <laughs> so he comes up and he's like, yeah, I have a problem. And I'm like, Oh, how can I help you? <laughs> Beautiful man. <laughs> do you need half my peanut butter and jelly sandwich? What do you need? Um, and he says, yeah, there's this really annoying girl giving advice on a rock. Oh, I know. And I will never, I mean, uh, sick burn. Yeah. So 10 points for that. Yeah. I will never, uh, that is more what's sort of, um, seared into my mind from that story than, than the getting in trouble with the principal. Giving advice is fraught business. I mean, I guess like in a therapeutic mode, fine. The person's coming. If you're an actual mm -hmm. therapist, people are coming to you. Right. They know what they're in for. Although honestly, any good therapist won't. That's what's weird. You, no one should do it. A therapist shouldn't give you advice. Yeah, My therapist should. will never tell me what to do. It's infuriating. It's like, yeah, they, but they will coax it out of you by asking questions. Of course. Yes. But they won't like just like sit there and lecture yeah. you or mansplain or whatever. No. But uh, like if you have a friend who's in a bad way and who is telling you about the bad way that they're in, I think reflexively, like, sometimes if you want to help, and if you can see a clear path or you mm -hmm. think you can, you want to tell them, but nobody wants to hear it really. You're just not ready to hear it. I mean, that's, what's weird is that people are just sort of using you as sort of a receptacle for their problems. I mean, sometimes it gets divided along gender lines, which is very funny. Like the, the, the cliche is that, you know, a man has a hard day at work and he comes home and he wants to sort of fix it, you know, when he's asking for advice or, um, Actually, wait, I'm telling the story wrong. <laughs> I don't even know the cliche. <laughs> the cliche is that when a woman has a problem and she tells her husband or her boyfriend or, you know, what have you, um, he generally tries to fix it. Oh, why don't you do this? You know, you should send an email to this person. Like, why don't you bring in, you know, this presentation? And the woman is often baffled and is just like, no, I just wanted to vent. Um, I'm actually, I think in that sense, uh, quite mannish in my opinions about advice. I'm constantly thinking of how to fix things and how to tell people what to do. Yes. I, gotta be, um, I, gotta I don't be really vent that much. I want, actually, I want to move past the venting towards fixing. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself thinking like if, and it's not everything for me, it's like certain things. I feel like I can see what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll just look at Carrie, my wife, and I'll just be like, if you just do what I say, yeah. <laughs> I promise you, I promise. it's going to go well. It's going to go well. Right. But it's too, um, it's technical. It's not like, and maybe there is a mansplaining element there because I think the last time a man has said something like that to me, it was like during a sporting activity where he's like, well, if you just hold the club in this way or the baseball bat in yeah. this way, yeah. um, you know, you got to choke up on it or shake hands with it or right. do something murderous, <laughs> whatever this instrument is. Right. Yeah. Palm it. Yes. I understand. <laughs> um, it just, I, it brings out the part of me that had a, a sort of sports dad who was very adamant that we play tennis forever. You good? <laughs> I am good. Yeah. I was better. Okay. But it's hard to play. <laughs> I, mean, I played all through, well, not all through college, but I played all through high school, some of college. I'm too short. Too but, short. What, the, so you can't get enough serve or something? I can't get on top of a serve. Enough. Right. Although the serve, it's almost like my game at this point is like, like a ruined, like the ruins of a city where you can kind of, if you went to like an archeological site and you'd see like, you know, okay, well that was clearly the church. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> Everything else is just a mess. Yeah, We're yeah. just gonna have to dust all of this and hope to find some pottery shards. Uh, <laughs> but like the but you can sort of the serve is the one thing where you're like, oh, I can see how she might have once been good. <laughs> yeah, I used to play my back. Uh, you know, my low back is giving ah, me my fits. sciatica. Yeah, that's really what I mean. Really? Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's like I can't because I used to like you know you torque your body a bit when you serve, and you know, especially yeah. on the second serve if you're and. So I can't play. Well, but less I, on a second serve because then you're being cautious. Well, but I'm but I'm spinning. Oh, like uh, okay, yeah, to, yeah. So anyway, anyway, it, it's been years. <laughs> I used to be able to play. I would say that my rubble is more advanced than probably the rubble of your game. No, mine's pretty. It's a decimated city. Can you play in New York? People play, do people play tennis in the city? Yeah, of course. Um, I think that you have to have a little patience and a little ingenuity to play for free, which is, I think you have to have a little patience and a little ingenuity to live in New York. Right. Maybe. right. Um, but I, uh, live in the West village and I play, there's, uh, three or four courts on Hudson river park. They're beautiful, great view of the water and the, um, freedom tower and all that. If you're into that, you know, freedom, and that, <laughs> that sort of thing. I like freedom. It's nice. Well, then this is the court for you. <laughs> um, but you have to wait and it's such a funny luck of the draw because if someone just arrives two minutes, you know, or 30 seconds after you, but then they're in line for any, that could be the difference of an hour for when you get on the court. Um, there are also courts in Central Park that's the same kind of deal, but there are more of them. My favorite secret court, however, I, I won't pay for it, is, yeah. is the theme of this, by the way. Sure, just, yeah. I just skip that part. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, my favorite is um, on Columbia's campus. I'm actually blanking on the name of the building, the building where they did the Manhattan Project on Columbia's campus. In the shadow of that are a couple of these sort of, you know, rusty fenced courts. I was thinking of like uh, the Royal Tenenbaums, those rooftop chain link. Yeah, it's kind of, it's actually a lot like that. It's like that. Yes. And and it it is technically on a rooftop just because the campus itself is elevated, but it's not a building. But um, it's... uh, And you have to have a Columbia ID. And I, I went to Columbia briefly, so I still have have that there you go that i'll use sometimes but I, that's really i have to really want to play because well maybe if i, I, I come go to, to new york we can heights. have a game i can i can show up with my racket i'll throw show my back up. out there's certain, yeah. <laughs> be fantastic well check all the things yeah. off for <laughs> yeah uh but, i want to ask you like you know i love talking about tennis but while i have you here okay yeah. i know my audience wants to hear about they don't want to hear about tennis well i mean i think they do but i i, I also think they want to hear about sorry uh it's all right how uh you work and how you make the art that you make because i think it can be i don't know a lot of people i think fancy themselves um funny or fancy themselves good writers or essayists and um you have found a way to kind of combine um i don't know a lot of different things like your essays go to darker places um they cut deep but they're they're genuinely funny Thank you. And uh, no, but I, like, I feel like there's like uh, these comparisons that you're getting um, with Nora Ephron, with David Sedaris. Like that's, that's a good sign. You'll I, take that. I'll take it. Yeah. So my question, I guess the first question I have is like, how do you write one of these? Like, how do you know when you have landed on an idea for an essay? Like, is it something where you're sort of doing one thing and then suddenly you stumble into something else? And, or do you have an experience in life and go, okay, that's it. Um, I might give you the first genuine answer to this question. <laughs> um, but unfortunately there are, there are two answers. The larger answer is unfortunately, I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> Which is There's not like a formula. Not a great, 
you know, it's not helpful when you're trying to parse out uh, writing and it's sort of like the really dirty secret is I don't know, um, which makes it sound uh, a little touched by an angel or just touched in general in the crazy way. But I don't. But once I'm writing, I then do know. So I'm not, you know, I'm drawn to the things I'm drawn to. Like there are certain topics that interest you. There are certain topics that interest me. And, you know, maybe there's hopefully enough of a Venn diagram between me and a reading audience that, you know, it's not, I'm not writing an essay about tennis. I don't, it doesn't actually interest me. Not yet. As much. Wait till we I think have our game. David Foster Wallace kind of pissed a circle around that for a yeah. while. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Exactly. Wait till you throw your back out. <laughs> um, and then, but I try not to make fun of other people too much, but no, but then once I sort of kind of alight upon an idea when it's in this sort of still in its zygote stage, I feel like they're one and then it becomes a little more firm and they're one of two directions I can go in. And one is, I mean, this is, again, it's not quite this binary, but um, one is the direction of, is there something I've been thinking about in general that I sort of want to get in on and do I have the bullet points to back it up? So in that sense, it's incredibly traditional essay, not just a narrative nonfiction comic story, which sometimes these are, but it really does like here are the things that support my point here, are the larger things I'm trying to get out. The last essay in this book, the doctor is a woman is a good example of that where the idea of fertility and the pressure to have kids and, you know, what are we all going to do and freezing, eggs. freezing eggs and, and, um, the sort of weirdness and trauma of that. And I just felt like it was such a big topic that I, I mean, I'd had, it's not like I'm the first one to write about it. Um, but I, I was hesitant to jump in until I had, like I said, the, the corresponding bullet points of personal experience. Um, and that's what you mean by bullet points. Like yeah. you, just, you just know the terrain. Yes. Yeah. I just know the terrain and I know what examples I'm going to use. I don't, I mean, I think very much in analogies, like, it's funny. I've noticed more and more, and then I'll answer the rest of the question, but I've noticed more and more that other um, writers who I respect, especially who write funny, tend, I just, I, I'm speaking with Chuck Klosterman in Portland. Oh, cool. Um, and what I do with analogies, I think Chuck does with scenarios. He's like, well, what if you did, you know, what yeah, if you did yeah, this? Yeah. What if you did that? And he's, yeah. he's so good at it. He's, I mean, and he, he even has like a card game based on all of his sort of riddles and scenarios. I don't think like that, but I do think everything is like something else. Everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's sort of my uh, humor. Um, do, do you go in? Cause like, like read, like for like the doctor is a woman. Mm-hmm. You, do you start with something that's interesting and maybe even painful or dramatic mm-hmm. and then go in because you know, that you have a lot of feelings about it Mm -hmm. and then find the funny within that? Or do you like find the funny first? Do you know what I'm saying? No, no. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of like, I guess like what you were saying with like the other way I was going to say, besides that sort of like, um, larger way that then drills down, if I can move away from the bullet point analogy, (laughs) um, and go straight to drilling. (laughs) People love fracking in essays. (laughs) Um, but the, the other way is that, yeah, um, and more commonly actually is that just a funny experience will happen to me. And then I recognize it as funny, but then the question becomes, and, and then I have another choice. It's like a which way book, you know, then my next choice is, does it become an essay or is it just a cocktail party story? Like, is there a larger point? Is there universality or am I complaining about getting a speeding ticket? You know, what is that thing or one line that, a person says, usually a stranger, not someone I'm really close with, will say something and just sort of throw the whole thing into very sharp relief. Hmm. And so how do you know, like once you, I don't know, I feel like it's like, how do you know once you have it? Like, how do you walk away? Because it's good. And you just, that's it. You feel like it's good. And maybe you're wrong. 
You know, I mean, who hasn't looked back at like a fourth grade paper and like that you cringe because you're like, I actually or something I wrote when I was like 37. Or let's just move it up. <laughs> let's move it up to 37. And you're like, I remember how awesome I thought this was. Yeah. You know, that's not what you're not cringing at the badness of it. You're cringing at how wrong you were about it. <laughs> and you're reading a lot of stuff in this genre and like sort of like comparing like does it for me. Yeah. Do you do that? Like, okay, so I feel like because I feel like. You, especially with the shorter form, you sort of get a sense. Like if you're reading Sedaris or you're reading Nora Ephron mm-hmm. and you're reading these people, you must be pretty well-versed in that. I am well-versed in, in those people. And I would add uh, David Rockoff to that list. Yeah. And, um, you know, going back to Joseph Mitchell, Dorothy Parker, and then more recently, I have to say, normally the celebrity transfer to, to the essay form, which is really something that's happened in the past, like eight to 10 years. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about that? Doesn't go well. Oh, I'll tell you in a second, but I have to tell you, Jesse Klein did it very well. Yeah. That was my, my build up to, I really love Jesse Klein's book. She's a, like Amy Schumer's show runner mm-hmm. person, right? Or something. Yeah. But she was like a human, like a, a non-Los Angeles human being before then. Sorry. <laughs> did you know her? She was one of us. Did you know her back in? <laughs> Vaguely. Okay. Vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, it's so weird. Like years ago I had this manager and they were like, Saturday Night Live is looking for writers. Right. And I was like, oh, and like, you know, but I have like no comedy experience. Right. But I was like, that sounds fun. Yeah. It sounds very fun. So I like wrote a packet, but then like, he was just like, oh, they already hired Jesse Klein. Yeah. Jesse's, I I mean, she's, I mean, listen, I'm sure you would have been a rock star too, but she definitely is one and and was one. I did. I did that for, um, the Colbert report actually. Did you? The packet. Rapport. Yeah. They, um, the packet and it was so, it was weird because I knew, I mean, it's so sort of, it's always hard and this is goes back to writing too. If you don't have like a book contract um, up your sleeve to put enough energy into something, enough passion into it, that it's good. Um, but not, there are certain projects that are not so much that you won't be devastated if you don't get it. So I definitely spent time on this. I don't think that's true for writing. I think you should just like leave blood on the field, but for, for something like this, for being asked to try out for a job, um, I wasn't even sure if I wanted it. Like I'm politically minded. I'm up to date on politics, but I'm not, you know, a total politics junkie, um, or current events junkie in that way. And that was really hard because you had to pretend the jokes all had to be you being liberal, pretending to be conservative yeah, no, that shows like, for a liberal audience. Right. And so that weird, almost like laundering of the joke, I found very, very, that's a very specific skill, that particular show. Yeah. That was, yeah. I mean, and for like nine years to do that every single day. I mean, and I obviously, if you work there, you get used to it. Um, and there's a formula and you get it, but you know, I wanted to ask you because you're so funny. Thank you. Uh, have, I'm sure like you've had opportunities to write for TV and film. Have, is that something you're yeah. interested in? I mean, I, um, I am interested in it. I mean, the, my first book for, I was told there'd be cake HBO optioned. Okay, um, right. and it got really, really far actually where like. They kept flying me out, which was great. And that's sort of, I mean, the upside is that I got to know them and then did two more pilots with them. Um, I'm working on the third right now. Oh, okay. And it's great because um, they're If they're flying you out, that means, that means something. Yeah. I mean, d- d- yeah, certainly. Um, it's not, I think, something that just happens to everybody who's, who's doing that. Um, and then um, The Clasp was bought by Universal. Okay. Um, and I wrote the screenplay, so we'll see what happens with that. Oh, you, so, I think so. we might have talked about Maybe. that. And then, um, I also, um, I just sold a show to Hulu, but I haven't started writing it yet. Well, look at you. It's great. But the problem is, is, um, 
that's, I think, I think when I was talking before about how much, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast or out loud to anyone, but how much effort you're putting into it. Like, certainly I want it to be as good as possible. I think honestly, it's so foreign to me and it's not, you know, life-changing money, frankly now, but the fact that it could be is almost something that I can't wrap my head around. Like forever, my life is books and also books, you know, at least, you know, you sign a contract and then a, it's like pregnancy. And then like, unless something goes awry and the baby comes out the other right, end, right. which is not the case for Hollywood. I froze my book, by the way. <laughs> you froze your book. How many books did you get? How many galleys? Cause that's all they are right now is galleys. I, right. I froze like three, <laughs> your embryo three galleys. galleys. I know. <laughs> I just really like the idea of like keeping my drafts in the freezer, which is apparently, did you see the Joan Didion documentary? I did. Yeah. Apparently that's what she did. What? Am I, you didn't get that? I'm not remembering. Shelley Wanger, who was her editor at Knopf at some point said that she used to keep a lot of drafts and manuscripts in the freezer. Oh, wow. I, I keep sweaters in my freezer because I have a moth problem. Well, and also I thought <laughs> that I, someone told me, why do you put jeans in the freezer? Something about getting, maybe getting a smell out of something or... I mean, if you're doing, if you're taking these measures to, to, if they're sort of circumnavigating hygiene, you should just go ahead and wash your jeans. I was just saying like, you don't want to commingle like filthy jeans with food. It's it's disgusting. It's weird. Yeah. What if you have a lot of garlic? But yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, um, so yeah, I enjoy writing dialogue. I mean, that's, I think that's something that's probably pretty clear in the essays, whether or not it's effective or not. Um, hopefully it is, but I, I enjoy it. And usually dialogue is often sort of a kicker for me. It either ends a a break or an essay. So it's pretty clear. I lean that way. Um, but I, I mean, I've never written a play, but yeah. Well, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, it what's is the exciting. Hulu show? You, may you may you say? I'd have to kill you. Which? <laughs> yeah. Is is it related to your one of your essays? Or no, books? none of them are. Which is really wonderful in some ways, and also signing myself up for a world of hurt in the other way because there's no blueprint, which means that I have to sort of describe. You know, these. If you've ever done any of these things, you have to describe mm-hmm. tone within an inch of its life, and almost. You mean like pitching? But no, I mean when you're doing sort of like. Um, um, I'm forgetting the word, the document that you use. Oh, like a treatment like a Bible, a treatment, a show Bible. Yeah. A yeah. Beat sheet. A like beat, all they're all, shit. you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like within an inch and you're like, and then that person will say, and then I was all, and they were all. And then like, it's, it's actually kind of healthy in some ways because it's frustrating, but you get, like I said, within an inch of writing dialogue. So then you feel like the sort of caged horse. So then when you actually get to write, you know, the, the script, it feels good and you know exactly where you're going well and if you're trying to sell a show and convince people to like spend the money to make the show it's like it's this weird needle that you're trying to thread because you're trying to write a document you know that if you're too wordy like it's like it's almost like they don't want to really read some big thing but yet you have to really show them what the thing is you just have to show them that they that you know what you're doing i mean that's true with the essays it's true that you just want to feel like you're in good hands with all state right you just want to know that. And like with, when it comes to the essays, I think I have, you know, this is my third book. I have like hopefully enough cred that like, it's not to say that every essay is perfect. Um, but come on pretty close. No, <laughs> no, there are 16 of them. I mean, 16, I, I, 12 are awesome. Okay. And then the no, others are okay. That's a good, that's a good average. That's <laughs> I mean, I'll take 12 yeah. out of 16. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying is that, uh, there's a, a little bit of a shorthand where I don't have to start every essay with this elaborate bang, uh, bang. You can just sort of 
being oh my god it's so subconscious um <laughs> freudian but like that you that that you know that there will be something that is a, a certain style that will be waiting for you um whereas with this i mean i don't have you seen anything i've written on tv i haven't so that, are, you, are you using yourself as like a proxy protagonist is there like a no 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 okay no i mean it's i mean because this is what part of the loveliness with the novel was is is not I mean, everything is a, has a piece of you in it. It's coming want, from your I skull. I want to see the Sloane Crosley protagonist. I feel like you'd be a, a winning heroine. Uh, oh, the, thank you. I do believe that. I don't know. I think, well, because I think with the with the narrative nonfiction, you just get so sick of yourself. I know. But, but that's but, but how you the know reader, to make But the reader is not, yeah. is not sick of you. Well, I hope that's true. I mean, it's it's under 300 pages. So that would be a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love, a sh- I mean, not a short book. I mean, I love like a novella, but I mean, right. if you write a book longer than 300 pages. Which I did for my last book. So it, just like tread carefully. You, got, you, know, like, <laughs> you really have to earn it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I feel like I, and I think of this as my, as a, as a writer, it's like, man, if I go over that, I better really have something to say. Like if I can't say it in 300 pages, mm-hmm. I better really be able to justify it in my head why I had to go over. It. And there are beautiful. I don't long... think that's true. Do you think that's true for fiction? It it depends. I'm just saying yeah. that like if you do go for, you know into the 500 page range or whatever it is, yeah, you better really there better really be a reason, right? You know, yeah. Well, it's like the line in um, Wonder Boys, and I um, forgive me, I can't remember if this is in the book, but I know it's in the movie where his student um, stumbles upon this. You know, what is it like? a thousand or like 1500 page manuscript and he catches her and she says, you know, well, you know how in class you're always telling us that writing is about making choices and it's just, you didn't make any. And then she like picks up a page or something. She's like, like when you go into like the dental records of the horses <laughs> and it's just, I, Oh, it, the dental records of the horses is like what I think of when I think about overwriting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it usually comes from that too. It usually comes from background. And that's a pitfall for nonfiction and fiction where you're like, oh, like, you know, people need to know everything before I can launch into the story. And do they need to know where every character's parents grew up? Probably not. Yeah. You got to drop them in. Yeah. Into the middle. But uh, mm-hmm. you got a blurb from Steve Martin. Yeah, I did. And I'm, whenever somebody gets like a blurb, because that's a hard blurb to get. <laughs> that's, that's a hard Steve blurb Martin, to Steve get. Martin's not like anybody needed a blurb. I had to vault. <laughs> did you? Like, how did you get it? I had to pull vault. Um, I got it. By writing him a note, you did. Yeah, it was a cold. It was a cold call blurb, which makes it uh, all the more valuable to me. It wasn't so it like wasn't a like a cashed in favor. No. Look no, no, at no. you! You wrote Steve Martin a note. Yeah, I wrote how him long a of note. a note? A short note. Okay, I'm just curious. Like, <laughs> was it like a? Because sometimes I, I could see myself like two page fan letter, right. but like you just wrote like a like a. I mean, I think that I wrote him a note that was like, um, you know, basically very simple, very plain, not trying to be funny. Not trying um, to be funny. No. Not trying Good to be move. funny. Work is funny. Didn't, like, not, Only funny line is at the end where I said something like, I feel like I'm writing the Easter Bunny. That was it. And that's it. Very well played. Thank you. Because like I... <laughs> but I, he... But it's actually really like his... My... His manager knows... Obviously knows his agent. That makes sense. They would know each other. Um, and then I, I think it's his agent who works at William Morris where my agent also is. So then my agent could physically... Who's your agent? 
Jay Mandel. Jay Mandel, okay. A wonderful human being. Everybody loves their agent. I, I always say that's that. not true. I left my first agent. Oh, you did? <laughs> Sloan Crosley hated her first agent. Ladies did not hate. <laughs> but, but really, you know, the, the cliche of like, I don't think we're a good match, which secretly means like, I'm not attracted to you. Get out of my house. Yeah, yeah. Genuinely, I meant we just weren't a great match. But I, great. I, I respect her. She's great. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you know, but I feel like the if you do have a good... Like creative symbiosis, because that's really what it is. They're, I think it's all reader. about who who you can talk to. Because like he's not, he is my first reader, but he's not my first editor. My editor is actually my first editor. That's not true for all agents. A lot of agents edit, yeah, um, before stuff is handed in. I don't, I don't do that. Um, not that you know. I mean, he's he's literate. <laughs> Hi Jay, are you listening? Um, Jay Mandel is yeah, literate. Can totally read on the record. Yeah, it's on his business card. <laughs> Colin can totally read. <laughs> William Morris. Um, no, but he. Um, for me, it was you know sometimes you're reactionary about what happened and you know both personally and professionally in your last relationship or even like I don't know we're in a house right now maybe you moved into a house that was different than the house that you used to live in, um, and I mean I lucked out that my he also turns out to be a wonderful agent, but immediately I felt like I could say anything to him where that wasn't necessarily true um, of my, my first agent and that comfort level I have with Jay has, I've rewarded him with every sort of just unfiltered thought I've ever had about any problem. That lucky lucky (laughs) son of a gun. (laughs) So yeah. But you know, that's a good, I think that's a good quality for an agent to have is somebody who's like, can listen Mm-hmm. Will because it's hard to be working in isolation out here, hoping that you know what I'm saying. There's such a long period of time where you're, mm-hmm. is this working? And then you ha- to have somebody just to sort of vent to. Like a- well, yeah, and I feel like I'm losing the thread a little bit of the part of me that used to work in book publishing because it's been almost eight years. You were a publicist. I was a publicist at uh, Random House, and I felt. Oh, sorry, yes. I was just going to say. I think in the first conversation we had, we talked at length about this. Oh, we did. Yeah, so I don't want to retread. No, but- I don't. I mean, honestly, it's nice to have shed it entirely. I'm just simply saying that my uh, behavior has probably become so much more purebred author, crazy author, mm. and a little farther away from like, that's not that big a deal. You'll definitely have a cover for your galley. (laughs) Like it's all gone. (laughs) So here's a question for you. You know how comedians will sometimes go, well, not sometimes, very often will go work a room Mm-hmm. To tr- to test material, yeah, it's like a part of the process, the creative. You mean like when they go to the comedy <clears throat> cellar and it's like Chris yeah. Rock, Chris hey, Rock, yeah. and he's just like, but he's bombing. It's like he's fucking terrible. Yeah, I had that. Ha- I saw a comedian the other day at Union Pool in in Brooklyn, and it was. They're scary. just working out material. Oh, it was so it was it was it was actually offensively bad. Yeah, it's almost like yeah. it's almost like you, you think to yourself like, oh my god, we saw Chris Rock at the comedy cellar, but it's yeah. like. Actually, like he just puts you through. Yeah, but I like, have a feeling Chris Rock's like D game is not as bad as what I saw. Right, but go right. ahead, yeah. So anyway, my point is that uh, like when you are working on this essay collection, and you're, you're thinking like this is funny, mm-hmm. are you your only real litmus for whether or not the funny is there, or do you like test the material on a select few people, and if they think it's funny, you know you've got it? Or is Jay like you know what I'm saying? Are like, you asking if I have a cat? <laughs> I do have a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, what's the cat's name? Oh, you don't want to go down this road. Mabel, I love her. It's not, uh, we don't want to. Okay. <laughs> I'll take up the whole podcast <laughs> with the cat. And that's, it's a bad look. You know, I mean, she was rescued from a warehouse in North Carolina, so that's good. Oh, wow. But um, I don't really do that. No. You don't go to like, you don't go do like a live reading at some event in New York no. and test an do essay. You know who's, I mean, Sedaris does that. 
that guy's a machine. He's got an unlock. He tests the essays because you can see him if you've ever seen him perform. I mean, maybe not like Carnegie Hall, but like a housing works or something like that. He'll do, you know, he'll cross out lines as, you know, depending on what people laugh at or make little notations where people laugh. Um, and hones these essays sort of while he's doing, not probably book tour, so that would make no sense because the book doesn't exist yet, but while he's doing speaking engagements, um, prints the things in The New Yorker, takes a dustpan, <laughs> puts them all together, kills a horse, makes it into glue, binds it and sells it. That's it's it. very simple. Mine, I don't have that platform. I mean, I have published things in you know, similar publications, but I don't. Have you published in The New Yorker? No, just That's going to happen. That's going to happen. No, well, Outside Voices was online and I was very happy with having it online. I mean, The New Yorker is tricky because when it comes to personal material, it's usually like very much, honestly, at this point, a celebrity or there's a huge reported component to it. Um, like Elif Botman does it and she does it beautifully. She was just in here. Oh, she's a gem of a human being. Isn't she? She was very, she was lovely yeah. to talk with. Yeah. She's really great and generous and so smart and wears her sort of brilliance very lightly. Yes. That's kind of the, that was the impression I got. Yeah. I was like, wow, she's being really nice to me. <laughs> I feel like if she wanted to, she could have just like, you know, I don't know. Clobbered you with SAT words. Yes, I know. I yes. feel that way around her too. And, um, but she's just sort of, uh, I don't know. It's nice when geniuses have a lot of heart. That's um, right. That's so. right. Doesn't we can always just happen. talk about her the rest of the day. Her and my cat. And, we, and she has a cat too. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> but like, yes. Um, so, okay. But I don't, the, the long, excessively long answer to your question is that I don't try it out on other people. Um, once I hand it in to my editor, I try it out. I definitely read it out loud before I hand it in. I read the whole book out loud before I hand it in. Have you ever had this experience where you're out performing your material and I, I you perform it, right? I'm going to say perform. I mean, at this point, it feels performative. Yeah. Okay. And you're reading in like the published copy of your book. Yes. Uh, do you ever have like the, when you're oh reading, God, I know where this is where going. you want to edit it. Like you're like, Oh, mm -hmm. I want to fix that. Mm -hmm. Like, and I fix it. And sometimes you'll even like change the way you read it. Mm -hmm. Like right there on I'll the spot. I'll add a word. There's a word missing in the, in the first essay in the book and it kills me. See? Yeah. I think that's normal. I guess. I know. think so. Well, it, well it's slightly different. A word missing is more cringe inducing than, Ooh, I just wish this, you know, or I missed a joke. I missed a joke or I need to make this 15 minute essay, 10 minutes. That's not a problem. Uh, or I missed a joke. Yeah. Like, um, but usually I don't, my problem is more as the essays have evolved. I was more of like a symbol mashing, mashing, bashing monkey, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> A symbol mashing bunk. Not as quick as I used to be. <laughs> Me neither. That's fine. Still drunk. But um, no, and now it's more about taking jokes out that are low hanging fruit. Right. You know, that I don't, it, it distracts from the point of the essay or like potential pathos of the essay if it's just. And you want like, I can imagine, I mean, I know this from my own work, uh, like writing and on the show where like, you want people to have a good time. I have well, that. yeah, you have to entertain them. People you, forget that. Okay. And so You're I obliged. Think, <laughs> so if there's like a low hang, when you think about low hanging fruit, it's like, I think that it's very easy to imagine or to fall into the trap of being like, oh, here's the joke, mm -hmm. but it's too easy of a joke. It's, but the essay's better if you take that stuff out. But I think it's born of a good impulse, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, well, there's the, um, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with the Coco Chanel quote, which is, um, you should get dressed and then take one thing off. I'm not familiar with that, yeah. but now Take I Take one thing off. That's always too much is one thing off. And you should do that with every paragraph you have. That's right. If you're writing humor, I think. Yeah. Brevity is yeah. the soul of wit. Yeah. 
So are you, you're funny in person. You're lovely Thanks. in person. Like, Thanks. uh, there's like, I think like sort of the wisdom or it's commonly said that like comedians are often like funny on stage, but like sort of miserable off stage. Miserable. And uh, I have a, a, Desperately wife, a wife, awful people. wife who works in talent production <laughs> and has been around many famous people or whatever mm-hmm. in her job and, and. Um, it's, it's not a hard, fast rule, but like, I think no Steve Carell is supposed to be a pussy cat. And yeah, but it's like, but I've also heard the other, I've heard the opposite about Steve Carell. Yes. Really? It's con- I'm confused. Well, see, this is the problem. Now he has, he's in a bad mood one day and right. you hear the opposite and you hear the opposite or, you know, you have, you have people who work and you could probably empathize with mm-hmm. this people who work in like studio publicity mm-hmm. who are often sort of, or marketing. And it's like, those people can sometimes just be like the imagined enemy of the creative people, whether right. it's the director or the actors. And they're like, they're not giving us enough money or they're asking right. me to do this stupid junket or, you know, and it's like, really, they're just trying to do their jobs. Everyone's trying to do their best. So everybody is, um, what's the word? allowed to have a bad day. Mm-hmm. But I think like the general thing is just like comedians, if they're, if they're wonky, they, they can be really difficult. Um, but there are some lovely ones. And I think like, you know, we're all human beings. The question that I'm getting at <laughs> Is in the literary, like uh, comedic literary realm, funny writers. Do you think the same thing holds true? Like, do you feel like there is a darkness in you or in other funny writers you know that exceeds the darkness in somebody who might work like straight literary drama novel? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I didn't expect. <laughs> I did not expect that clean answer. Next question. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's well, there's the sad clown phenomenon, right? Yeah. Um, Although I don't want to take away from someone else's potential dark night of the soul, <laughs> right. you know, just You're because they're too. not writing humor doesn't mean that they're not depressed. Um, but yeah, there's, but it's also, it's, it's less of, um, the low buzzing, at least for me personally, I can't speak for everybody else and what goes on in their brains. But, um, for me, it's less the low buzzing upset and darkness. that's constant. Um, that might be, you know, it's not, I'm not a depressive person, person, um, but You're I, not. I don't think so. I okay. mean, I have been depressed, but I wouldn't say I have like an Eeyore sensibility when I walk around the world. Um, I kind of do. Do you? Well, okay. I was here, I was listening to, <laughs> I was listening to Oprah's uh, super soul Sunday podcast. I mean, who I've, wouldn't? Yeah, I've been binging on it, binging yeah. on it. I think it's like, and, and what's weird and what kind of amuses me, like there are many things that amuse me about it. I'm net positive on Oprah. So I don't want to sound like an yeah. Oprah basher. I feel like you can bash Oprah. No, but it's, it, that's low hanging fruit. She's actually, I think she's net positive. Um, and, uh, there's a moment where she's talking to somebody and I'm going to forget who it is, but it's an author and she sort of divides the world over simplistically, but divides the world into like Tiggers and Eeyores. Oh, really? Okay. I don't think I'm a Tigger. No, you're not a Tigger. I'm kind of an Eeyore. It's more, it's more about the specificity of how I view things. Like I will always think when you just said Oprah is low hanging fruit, all I could think of her was of her in like a swing, like a rickety swing from a tree and it's snapping. <laughs> Like literally there's no, right. it, it's just, what is the worst possible thing you could, so in a way I'm not a depressive, I think I'm a catastrophist Okay, me too. in that way. Yeah. I just sort of either assume the worst or think the worst, but in a way that is then processed through a mind that is not inherently Eeyore-ish or inherently Tiggerish. I have to say there's a way that. There's another character that might define, that we need more characters. Well, there's, there's Piglet. Yeah. Piglet's pretty cute. I would Winnie the Pooh. That. Oh yeah, that guy. Yeah. But I guess <laughs> it's always the front man of the band who yeah. gets everything, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> like I, Piglet's like the frustrated, like emo guitarist, <laughs> but, but no, it's just more that it's funny with the essays, how people, 
it's it's like a litmus test for people's personalities or something. I mean, some people feel like my writing is this sort of like upbeat, like beloved things. I think there is, or not maybe not beloved, but because there's ener- there's a clear energy to it, which I will totally acknowledge and cop to without being like, oh, I don't know. If what I do you mean it. by that? It goes fast. It seems like I'm curious. It seems wide eyed. It doesn't seem sleepy. It doesn't seem over things. You know, it doesn't seem sort of um, cynical. It's not cynical. And that's, con- I mean, that's conscious. Like, do you have to like, work? that's just how I am. That's just how you are. However, you to- but, but it's not, a, but people, it's not, but then other people think it's too dark and too mean hmm. and too, um, they got to toughen up. I know. Seriously. Come on, people. Put some hair on your chest. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> this is how you hold the bat. I think it is noble. And I say, I have, I'm, I love comedy. I love comedians. I think it's a very noble profession. Like, how, oh, really? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it certainly is useful now. It's always useful. I know, but especially the, now, especially now. And like for people who, and, and especially, and I guess maybe everybody who's working humor on some level is doing this, but it comes from confronting the dark stuff and then, uh, transmuting it. Right. That's why there aren't any Republican comedians. That, yeah. Because well, they're not confronting the dark stuff. Is they that just what it want is? things to go back to the way it was. Or yeah, it's just like every... Which, by the way, wasn't... I don't know where that is, but... That is a... I mean, it's a... It's a that take has been had many times. Yeah, like, I think why, so. why are there no right-wing... I mean, there are a few. Like, Dennis Miller like went right-wing, but right. he sort of, lo- sort of lost a lot of his audience, I think, in doing that. Maybe he gained it. Gained it I mean, right, but... there's a way... Um, it's it's hard when one side is so comical. I mean, it's almost like I would imagine that it would be like living in Canada and like growing up and living next door to like the biggest superpower in the world for now. Um, and you and that's why there are so many comedian comics. Like so much humor comes out of Canada, right? And I think it's because they grew up next to us and. Not, um, I mean, you know, if, if there are any Canadians listening, I know that on the surface that sounds like exactly the kind of like American centric yeah, comment yeah. that they would hate, but I mean it because we're so ridiculous. Well, and I think too, <laughs> if you look at comedians, if they don't come from Canada, <laughs> they, <laughs> I like from, this like idea that's like, okay, that's, we just get that out of the way first. Are you from Canada? If you're not from Canada, life? then you're probably like David Letterman. Cause yeah. I grew up in Indiana. Yeah. And like, I know what it's like to be from a place like that where mm-hmm. you're sort of like, no one wants to, like you talk to people in Los Angeles, it's like, you want to go to Indiana? Everyone's like, what? Yeah. Well, you have yeah. the Indy 500. Indy 500. You have they, Merck. What is that? It's a pharmaceutical company. Oh, we do. Yeah. We have Eli Lilly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah. yeah. Eli Lilly. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know, David Letterman, <laughs> I feel like comedians will often come from like backwaters or whatever places that are considered well, places uh, that are a little, I mean, every comedian comes from that place, whether it's, um, internally or externally. So, I mean, uh, there's a a side note is there's, this will get back to it, I assure you, but there's um, a story that I absolutely adore about um, Prince and Matt Damon and Julia Stiles had just wrapped the Born Identity and there was some sort of fancy party and Prince was there. It's like, what do you say to Prince? Who knows? And Matt Damon went up to him and said, you live in Minnesota, right? I hear you live in Minnesota. And Prince said, I live inside my own heart, Matt Damon. (laughs) And I feel like... By which I mean, um, as long as you're coming from the outside personally, you know, a little bit or wherever you live is sort of irrelevant. Um, it's just, are you, do you feel slightly left out? Do you feel in the observational role? And I do think that there are people and they're not just necessarily just writers 
I'm so hesitant to call writing art. I think it's writing. Um, I think it's a f- in the arts family, but it's just like, I mean, if you're a fashion designer, you're a fashion designer. It's just art to me. Uh, it's a wonky term when you start calling yourself an artist, especially. Um, but like a painter, anything, you just have to, there are people that are just observers in this world. And you're one of them. I think so. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, unless I'm really tired. <laughs> In which case you just... And then I don't, I don't care. I don't notice anything. There was... I... I um, yeah, I, I just won't... I won't notice. Apparently, I was I was in um, Tulsa the other day, and I have a friend who lives there, and we were talking, and we were walking along the street, and then this guy ahead of us turned, and she's like, oh my God, it's so crazy. Like, it's weird how he, like, decorated his prosthetic limb. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I barely noticed the guy. <laughs> and he, what did he do to it? I don't know. I, I, guess he, like, I guess he had like um like a graffiti or something on okay. it, like something awesome, and, like tattoo almost. Yeah, but something irreverent and powerful and whatever. Okay. I did not notice it. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. glad she pointed it out. So is maybe, it, was, it, was it a she that you were with? Is it he? Oh, yeah. she. I was with a she. Yeah, it was a he. Well, I'm glad yeah. she pointed it out. Yeah. Um, vertigo. Yes, have it. You have it. Yeah. Right now? No, I would be on the floor. Okay. Like what, what, tell me this, like what happened? Like where does this come from? There was an, there's an essay in the book um, called Cinema of the Confined, um, which is, I think my favorite title in the essay. You know, sometimes you sort of slap them on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This sure is about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But basically uh, I'd had vertigo a couple of times and then I got it really, really, really badly. Um, What does it feel like? Like to somebody who's never had vertigo, if like an, uh, an attack or whatever comes on, suddenly you just, you, do you feel like you're going to fall over? Or it you... really, uh, it's not just dizziness and it's not a head rush. It really does imitate the experience of being in an amusement park or in an, on an amusement park ride down to your vision blurs the way it would if you were spinning around really, really fast. Oh, God. It speeds up and slows down the way a ride does. Um, it's I mean, for a lot of people they get nauseous. I mean, it really is like I mean, it's everything but the corn dog. Right. <laughs> like, everything but the funnel cake. <laughs> <laughs> everything but the funnel cake. Essays. <laughs> like, it's really um, and for me, a lot of people have different kinds of it. Um, and what what's actually happening um, is that there are sodium crystals uh, that have migrated from where they should be in your ear to the semi sodium crystals. Yeah, you have crystals in your ears. Okay. It's amazing. You're a unicorn. All right. But basically, <laughs> they dislodge themselves, migrate to the semicircular ear canal, and then cause all sorts of havoc with the fluids in your ear. We are fragile creatures. It's amazing. Like, it, isn't it amazing? Like when you're in all good, it takes is that. Yeah, when you're in good health, mm-hmm. like you don't realize what a delicate equilibrium you are in. I think about it every once in a while. Like I'm crossing my legs right now, and I'm like, well, if I had a shattered kneecap, that wouldn't work. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's amazing. Or just if my cartilage was just completely disintegrated, it's it's absolutely amazing. And so, I have this thing where I, especially as increasingly as I go on, as I get older, I like to take very upsetting things or dark things and make them funny and find the humor in them. Um, and being diagnosed with this weird inner ear disease, which is actually not that uncommon. It's rare as far as healthy people are concerned. It's right. sort of not rare as far as sick people are concerned, like 200,000 plus people have it. Yeah. Um, but you know, there is my father in remission right now and very healthy, but he had something called mantle cell lymphoma, which 3000 people have. Mm. So that's, Olympic rare. Yeah. Mine is like, you know, ice cabins rare. No, but you know, um, like my son uh, was born with some challenges. And so we have like a handicap placard okay. on our car. 
Okay. And uh, it's the kind of thing I never thought about until this happened to us. And I drive around, I see them everywhere. Yeah. I, I notice I them in people's notice. cars. And I go, wow, there's a lot of people dealing with disability. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people dealing with cancer. There's like, it's easy when it's not in your immediate sphere to assume that it's rare. But the truth is that there's so much of this. Everyone eventually well, is going to deal with it, you know? When you're one of whatever number it is, it feels a lot bigger. Yeah. So when you're one of five, it feels like 20. And when you're one of 200,000, it feels like a million people have this. You know, you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And probably the same thing with your son. Like suddenly you just, it's like a really perverse Easter egg hunt with those signs, right? You just see them. Like they just pop up everywhere, I'm sure. And it's, it's weird. And part of the point of that essay is to sort of compare medical writing to travel writing. Um, and to sort of talk about like, what's the, what's the comparison? Cause like, that, that's like an unusual leap, but like, what's the comparison? <laughs> Medical writing and travel writing. Yeah. Um, cause you're going to a different country and in one people are interested in having you bring them back something and right. other people want no souvenirs. So you're sort of shut out with medical writing and it feels like you want to report, but how do you report without boring people or scaring them or just repulsing them? Because, people are weird around illness Um, and not just the ones you can contract. It's just, Ooh, you have a problem. It's this almost um, actual Darwinism that probably became social Darwinism, which is, I don't know how to deal with, you know, I'm not sure what's wrong with your son, but if it's a limp or if it's visual or whatever you can see, it's like not a lack of empathy, but it's just like, I don't know how to deal with it. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to stay away from it. Yeah. And I just want to say, cause this is important to me. Like you're touching on something that like really gets I'm me. I'm sure. <laughs> if you... But it's like, I, you, I can already see it and I don't blame people or, or I don't think people are, like you say, lacking in empathy mm-hmm. or are like mean, No. but for people listening, like if you are confronted with somebody who is ill or who is, has a physical disability or a mental disability or any kind of go, go towards them. Of course. Be kind, like make an extra effort to say, Hey, you know, or like I, people recoil and it's the opposite of what, uh, people with disabilities I feel need. They don't want to be yeah. patronized, you know, but, and, and especially like the loved ones of people with disabilities, I'm very intensely aware of it when I'm in public where people are like, you see people sort of like diagnosing, you see people, <sighs> it's every day. And it's just like, I just want to say to people, just extend yourself. I I promise. And it's actually like, uh, rewarding. I've learned this as a parent because you meet other parents in community, you know, in the disability community. And, uh, I don't know. It's like, it gives back a lot. It's very, it's like a very like enriching human experience to get to know these kids or these people. And I don't know, it's just, it's important to me. I was raised, I mean, my mother just retired after 40 years of teaching special ed. Okay. So, you know, I get it. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but even beyond this, it is important. And it's true of anything. It's true of any preconceived notions. It could be about disability, about race or whatever. I think you should just walk into every room and walk into every encounter, assuming civilization until proven otherwise, like assume that that person is on the level with you and, um, shares your sort of moral code and when it comes to behavioral stuff and when it comes to disabilities, just like assume that they're completely functional and just a kid or just a, you know, they happen to be in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter what the age is um, until it's clear that, okay, well, they can't hear or they need you to, you know, physically slow down when you're walking with them and then just do that. It's very easy. Right. It's not that complicated. No, but people are, it's, it has nothing to do with, 
your child has nothing to, it's just their own fear, obviously yeah, not to right. turn this into Oprah's podcast. No, but it's, you know, but... it's like, it's not a conversation or like something that I think gets articulated enough. And like just that, the emotional content of that experience. Um, and I get it. Like it's, it's, it is, I think reflexive, uh, or what's the word that you used, uh, like Darwinian almost to, yeah. to see illness in front of you or to see right. some sort of malady in front of you and to kind of move away from it. But what's the problem is, is that I'm glad you brought that up again. Cause I, what I started to say was that it's Darwinian. It used to be Darwinian in the real sense the I, the, to be totally crass that I don't want to mate with that sense. Yeah. That doesn't really exist anymore. And so now I feel like it's just social, which is just more brutal than biological. Right. right. It's just like, I'm just going to avoid you for no particular reason. Well, people, I think people have a lot of, I mean, people always have had a lot of things going on, uh, anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. but I feel like life, the intensity of life, especially in cities, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to divide between city and country, but hmm. there's a lot coming at you in a city like New York. There's a lot coming yeah. at you in Los Angeles. Like just the, I mean, this morning I went, took my dog for a hike. It's just like a dude, like on the sidewalk, face down under one of those space blankets. Uh huh. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, the really heavy ones. No, it's like the silvery, like metallic. Oh, oh okay. No. So, but it's like, I was thinking of the gravity blanket. Excuse <laughs> me. It's the actual opposite of a space yeah. blanket. Like they, they give them to, you know, it's like in an, uh, a runner, it's a marathon runner, like a go yeah. bag. Like, or if, you know, mm -hmm. if there's an emergency and you're freezing, you wrap yeah. this thing around you. But just like one example where you're like, wow, that's a lot to process. Yeah. And it's like over and over and over but again. But don't you feel like that because you, you are, I would say among I mean, maybe everyone is processing it if, who has eyes, but the fact that you think that makes you in the minority. Some people just walk right past. Yeah. yeah the but, fact that you think, oh, I'm walking right past. Yeah. You know. Well, here's the thing, though. I think that I was like driving at is that um, it's hard to have enough um, space to take on the suffering of others, especially if it's acute. Mm -hmm. If you yourself have not like, you know, it's like the, the airplane analogy, you got to give yourself, put your, mask, put your mask on first, but people aren't doing it. You know, like I, I feel like it's hard. Some people don't have time for self-care or they don't think they do, or yeah. they don't know how to do it or, you know, but it's weird. It's like, we need to be kinder to one another, uh, in this country and in this world. But it, the irony I think is that we have to start by being nicer to ourselves, but you don't want to like fall into like solipsism or you know, selfishness. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do you, I, it's so funny. Someone asked me that weirdly the other night about, because I, it is like we discussed the essays are performative. And so it's like, you're kind of leaving it on the stage or the podium in the bookstore <laughs> <laughs> or, or in the absence of a stage. Or in the absence a of a stage. <laughs> it's a couple of homeless people and someone who was looking for another reading. Um, but yeah, <laughs> they, like, and I, um, I didn't have an answer. I was like, they're like, well, what do you do to you know, take care of yourself? I'm like, I don't know. I just I know when to right. stop. I know. I just happen to sell the thing I take, do to take care of myself and um, not to crib Joan Didion, but I do often write to find out what I think. And, but because I sell it, you know, it's like, then it becomes ironically cheap, you know, or it becomes a little, it's almost like you selling your, your newspaper in the third grade. Um, the second you started charging for it, even if it was 25 cents, that was where you got into trouble. Right. Um, and suddenly it's like, no, 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 that's no longer something that's healthy because you do it for work. 
I just, my stomach just growled so much. Can you hear it? <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Are you Star- hungry? I guess. <laughs> Starving me out in Los Angeles. No carbs, no food. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I just, I feel like that it, it happens to overlap. And so no, I don't, I don't paint and I certainly don't journal. I'm like, please, oh, God, I yeah. need my thoughts. I mean, I take notes, um, yeah, if like I find using... something interesting and then put it potentially in an essay, but okay. So like you just, you do type it into your phone. Yeah. That kind of thing. I actually have a notebook. Oh, you do. Depends. Do you carry it with you everywhere? Um, no, I did. I was at, um, I was at Yotto in January and I kept a diary only because when I can, and I'm doing it also on book tour because when I can sense in advance that days are going to blur together and I'm not going to be able to even tell myself what happened, um, or what I was thinking at the time then I, I keep a physical notebook with me, but I don't keep a journal on a regular basis. And I don't, I'm not like a narc. I'm not writing down everything my friends are saying. Right. Going to an essay. Yeah. What are the writers are always selling somebody out? I know, but like weirdly I, I've made, I have definitely done that to a few people that are, um, that I really know and that really know me, but really I'm like dangerous to strangers essentially. If you, if I don't know you and you do something ridiculous to me, I think that's not wise. (laughs) (laughs) Let that be fair warning. (laughs) The gauntlet has been thrown down. Um, yeah. Wow. So, uh, you just, you, you do your writing, you read, uh, like spiritually, where are you? You do anything like that? I'm Jewish. Okay. Um, identify as Jewish, you know, I, I practice well in like the Holy holidays. Okay. Um, I, I, I envy Jewish people. Well, we're, we are people that value, um, we value education. We value questioning in our own religion, which is rare. But the, also, the community, I think is oh, what I envy. Okay. Like the, you just want locks. What I is just, <laughs> is, that, is that the problem? I, I can just, just I, make you a bagel. I, <laughs> no, but I have like, I have a lot of Jewish friends, uh, here in LA and like, the holidays, like, like they get together and it's not like owners. I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. which I feel like there's some weird, there's a, there's a guilt thing. There's a Catholics guilt. are fascinating to me. I mean, well, I, cause the leap that you have to take to believe that when you take the Eucharist, that it is not a symbol of the body of Christ, but the actual body of Christ. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, that's amazing. See, like to I'm, me. I'm Buddhist, you know, somewhat Buddhist, and like mm-hmm. the Eucharist actually makes sense to me in a like through a Buddhist lens. It never made sense to me through a Catholic lens. And now that you're in LA, you can't even eat it. I know. Sorry, <laughs> it's, it's awful. It's like, who's gonna eat that? Yeah, it's terrible for you. It's garbage food. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I just I I feel like there is, and you know, for for um, not so nice reasons, and a lot, you know, historically. I think there's a togetherness or a connectivity among Jewish people that I, f- I find nice. Like they, yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard one. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that um, the people I gravitate towards tend to, if they're not Jewish, they can at least comport themselves as if they've been oppressed for five thousand years. <laughs> you know. I hope I, you I hope have you count to me be able them. to do that. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Like I was like, you know, bring me your, you know, I don't know, like bring me your Irish, bring me, bring me your, you know, African, bring me your Italian, who else? Korean, they've got it. Like, I mean, just like, you know, that, that something genuinely bad, um, 
you know, someone basically tried to annihilate you in some way. That's, and there's, and there are actually most, most people on the planet have had that experience. Well, I mean, but, but um, except we're for forgetting. maybe the Norwegian. We're forgetting. Did Norwegian you see the statistic either. recently about what how happened? like 49% or so I forget what the numbers are, but like a disturbing percentage of Americans don't even know what Auschwitz is. Oh yeah. That was just on studio 360. Um, I think yesterday it was, it was, it was actually, it wasn't Americans. It was millennials. Okay. <laughs> just, Maybe millennial Americans, which just, yeah. I'm just trying to make the number smaller if I can possibly do that. Um, I find that very strange, but at the same time, a little unsurprising because um, it's all proportionate to the tra- tragedy. Um, so you got like 1943 to now. Depressingly, now sounds a- about the right amount of time that for people would not that people would know what the Holocaust is, but they would not know the details. Like for instance your kids are probably not going to know that the Pentagon got hit on 9-11. My kids will know. Okay, fine. <laughs> your, excuse me. The, your kids and they're, they're just, they're delinquent friends. Yes. Such <laughs> a bad know, influence. It's just, and, but that makes sense because that's 2001 to 2018. And ter- I mean, literally, I don't want to get too mathematical about it, but I mean, in terms of um, tragedy levels and body count, I do think that time is right for people to really need to be reminded. I mean, people said never forget. People say never forget about 9-11, about the Holocaust, everything, because they know that this is going to happen and they know it's inevitable. History is one of the, I think, most poorly taught. It's also a really difficult subject to teach because there's so much subjectivity to it. Like mm-hmm. if I, like a really good historian. Have you taught history? No. Oh. But I wish, you know, it's the kind of thing like I, I dream Me too. of, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Road like, not taken. To be, yeah, to be like <laughs> great, a great historian, um, to me, it's like a rock star, like somebody who can mm-hmm. really like dive back in and like recreate, but like have a comprehensive or as close Amazing. to comprehensive as you can get. Or like Hillary Mantel is a rock star. It's not a historian, but geez. Yeah. 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 And so it's, but I feel like, you know, when I think back to the history courses I took in like junior high and high school, like, wow, that was pretty narrow, you know? And, uh, this is in, 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 in Indiana. Yeah. And I had just, yeah. you know, I, I'm thinking of one. Did you learn about the Holocaust? Uh, yeah. But I love this podcast. I got it. Just. <laughs> It's just yucks <laughs> and Holocaust. <laughs> I learned, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I probably have a more visceral understanding of the Holocaust from cinema than I do from history class. If I'm being, what's the first Holocaust film you ever saw? Oh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure I saw Schindler's List in 93. You, you weren't out. like weaned on Shoah though. That's your problem. No, <laughs> I'm scared to watch Shoah. You don't have time to watch Shoah. That's a long, that's a big, long documentary. And like, you just don't have time. I'm the kind of person who would, but the problem is that my viewing window as an adult parent person is in the evening and I can't go yeah. to bed with that. It's too well, much. Well, the, the, uh, attempts at humor again, attempts at making dark things funny. Um, I mean the worst, uh, attempted that and and i think it won an oscar for it the attempt um was life is beautiful the roberto benini Benini. and david ruckoff has a great um bit about it at some point where he basically says that so his theory is people who did not survive the holocaust did not do so because they weren't funny enough and they weren't cute enough i remember steven spielberg not being a fan not a fan yeah of that movie because he didn't think it and it was so funny and this is what annoys me about this is a humor thing in general not i mean we can talk about the holocaust forever (laughs) let's face it (laughs) i made a holocaust joke the other night in a tour city and then everybody laughed and then i yelled at them all for laughing which was really fun for me um but complete control i'm like what's wrong with you people (laughs) but um no um that 
people will often say, and this happens to women a lot too, that like, oh, it's just, it's either raunchy or offensive or something. And you just, you didn't get it. And for me, who does this for a living, and even if I didn't do for a living, I would still be me, even if I had never written a word. I'm like, no, I got it. I'm not a dum-dum. Yeah. It's just not funny. And there's something about that movie that dares you to call it disrespectful. Not necessarily irreverent, because it's not, but that dares you to say it's not deep enough. Um, and because that's sort of implicit and it's it's baked into the DNA of the movie, it, it's not like it's beyond reproach. I, there's plenty of reproach, but the one thing I really want to say, it's already has this built in defense mechanism. I'm like, no, it's just doesn't go deep enough. Isn't a very good movie. And it makes it sound like I'm not getting what he was trying to do. And I'm like, I really do. Yeah. <laughs> just didn't like it. Right. Well, and I want to ask you, cause like we live in this era, I think things are changing. A lot of sensibilities are changing the way we talk about, um, uh, all sorts of different issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a, a heightened sensitivity is there for me. I think it's there for a lot of people mm-hmm. and I think it's a good thing, but when it comes to comedy, it gets a little tricky. Like where is the line on a joke? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is there a way to articulate that? Cause I think comedians like by nature, comedic writers or whatever, like mm-hmm. uh, I think part of the job description is to test those boundaries and to push those things. And you know, sometimes people like uh, tell a shitty joke or a, a joke that doesn't land or the, a joke that might be, I don't know, comes from like uh, a not so great place or, you know, there's all sorts of ways to fuck up a joke, you know? Yeah. And I just wonder like in your own work, like, do you have a way of gauging this stuff? Do you have any kind of like way of articulating it to yourself or like a, a set of rules for when you know, or is it just pure instinct? I think it's partially instinct and then it's partially knowing where it's coming from. Um, anything that is said with the objective to offend people or shock humor, I just don't find funny. I'm not saying it should be outlawed. I just, it's not my bag. But some things that you would think are not shocking or offensive might be shocking. Well, there's one line in, in look alive out there that, um, someone had me read a bit of cinema of the confined, which is the dizziness essay. And I talk about going to the doctor's office and I feel like there is this comment I make that I know is ageist. But the ageism is sort of part of the piece, which is that I'm diagnosed with this thing that people have, you know, in their 80s. Um, And so that sort of disconnect between the people in the waiting room and me and why, oh my gosh, I shouldn't be here, I shouldn't be here, um, is already built up in that paragraph where by the time there's a very sweet man in a tweed cap who gives me a smile because he can tell from the way I'm sitting that I'm trying not to get dizzy. And... I say I should have been grateful for this twinkle of commiseration, but I don't want to be a part of any club that can't remember its own handshake. And i that's the only line in the book that I'm like, I don't know if it's worth it. So in other words, there is no line at all, actually, I don't think, as long as it's funny enough. As long as it's funny enough, you can get away with murder. Right. including actual murder. Right. <laughs> but, but you, okay, I've killed a man. <laughs> you heard it here first. You heard it here first. Yeah. Really breaking ground here. Much like I did when I buried him, but no, I just, I just, but it's more, um, it's just more, is it worth the squeeze? I guess is the, is the expression. And if it is, then yeah. I mean, anything I've regretted writing that I feel like has offended people. I've only regretted not because they're offended, but because I don't think, that I sort of sang for my supper enough. It wasn't funny enough. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, because I can get, like on Twitter especially, it's like, well, like sometimes I'm just trying to be funny and then after the fact, I'll be like, 
Did I offend? Twitter is dangerous. Yeah. And Twitter, it's funny. It hasn't really affected. My essays are extremely like old fashioned. There's like, except for emailing my stuff note, emailing myself notes. I mean, there's not a lot of technology. There's like one joke in the entire book where someone like expands an image on the, on their iPhone with their thumbs. That's it. It's like the iPhone joke. Yeah. <laughs> the obligatory, <laughs> the obligatory. I, it's like my one Republican friend, you know, is like an essay number three wave. <laughs> That's it. But then it's not, um, but Twitter, I like people's Twitter feeds. I enjoy, I, I enjoy a good, a good Twitter a good tweet. Sure. Um, but like my, I think my favorite literary Twitter feed is Susan Orlean yeah. because she, it's really unartful. I mean, she's a genius. I love her. I respect her. Um, she's working on a new book. I think that's coming out. Um, but it's really, she just wants you to know what's up. It's just Susan Orlean being like fed the goats. Yeah. Hit my page count. Right. Do you know who I don't like? Paul Manafort. Like, it's like, yeah, like, <laughs> like it's just there's, crazy. There's different ways to do it. Yeah. And like, you know, like, but it's and, great. And yeah. And I, but I, I guess, uh, what I want to say is like, it's, isn't it interesting? Like who is extra fascinating on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Cause it's not necessarily who you would think. No. Like Chris Rock on Twitter. It's like, uh, you know, like he can what be is, funny. I don't follow him. Is it just like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be at the, I think so. I, you know, I'm, I'm pulling him out. Like I, or, could be anybody, yeah. but it's like, you know, you would think that a person like him or some celebrity would be like lights out funny and the perfect, but it's actually somebody who's just like fed the goats. Yeah. Why is that well, so Susan's, good to read? Susan's more, well, Susan, it's a humanizing thing. Cause yeah. I really respect her. I mean, think about what she writes. It's just this wonderful, uh, you know, without being, sort of Janet Malcolmy or Truman Capote about it. She inserts herself in this very sort of delicate way into her work, which I'm sure I'm using that word because of the flowers, but, <laughs> but, you know, and, um, find such good stories and is so smart and so human about them. And so to just see her be like, God, it's windy today. And you're like, oh, it, 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 each tweet. We might live as in the well same say, world. Yeah, they might as well just all say, "I put my pants on one leg at a time," just again and again, like red rum style. Right. Like that's, they might as well just say the same thing, and that's how they read to me. So to me, they're almost therapeutic. What about you? What do you do on Twitter? Like, yeah, do you have like a do you have like a a tweet a tweet a tweet? Yeah, or do you have like a like a method? You know what I'm saying? Like, are you doing a certain thing on Twitter that you try to stick to so that you can? Well, right now my method is being completely insufferable about my. <laughs> right. It's just you know, and hiding it really poorly. Yeah. It's, it's literally it's gotta, like I've got make... Groucho glasses on, and I'm like, I'm not talking about my book, but I actually am. <laughs> you know, you got to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but generally. I don't know. I think it's stuff that I just know doesn't, it's, isn't going to go anywhere else or just what occurs to me at the time. I do think that there are certain things that, you know, I've seen either with myself or with other people that like full op-ed ideas and really succinct fashions have been left by writers on Twitter yeah. because you're just so into that instant gratification of it. Or like a good you're essay. You're not letting it gestate. A whole essay probably wouldn't, but like, yeah, but, but a, just a current. Or the framework for an essay though. Yeah. Like there's like, yeah. I, I think I've, I think I've wasted a ton of material on, on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Or, you know, in the monologue well, that's of why the like show. Tina Fey is not on Twitter. She's always like, I need my jokes. <laughs> right. I don't know how many of you guys think I have, but right. they need to be mine. Right. So. Um, but also Tina Fey probably has a life where, she doesn't need the, there's fun. enough stimuli. No, but she like, if you're working by yourself in an apartment and you know, you're not constantly in a billion meetings and you don't have like a whole family and stuff like that. Twitter can be like a nice, like, sure. Still here. And plus, and if you don't, I mean like Tina Fey does something, there's going to be a lot of noise made. Yeah. 
Like if yeah. Joe Schmo, the writer. Well, at this point, she can't get on Twitter because at this point, it would just her first tweet would just have to be the best tweet that ever. Yeah, a lot lived. of pressure. She can't do it. Do you know her? No. I feel like you guys should be friends. Well, we'll send her this podcast. Let's work on that. Yeah, I'm sure she's a listener. <laughs> well, she's not on Twitter. She's busy listening she's to my entire listening. catalog. I'll just be like, listen, if it's good enough for Steve Martin, lady, <laughs> you think you can handle it? Let's have lunch. Yeah. Oh God. Maybe um, I can pick her brain. Well, you know, I'm she's, kidding. That's uh, the worst expression ever. Speaking, speaking of uh, <laughs> writers who like cross over from celebrity to the literary, mm. did you read Bossy Pants? I have not. And I, I not feel either. like I would love it. I feel like I would too. And I, I just haven't read it. But that's also, I, I, it's not essays. It's a whole... Like memoir. Non, yeah, it's a memoir, which is, I respect her. I not, feel like she's you know? the Reese Witherspoon of comedian. How so? Just like, like... I just feel like Tina does not fuck around. I don't feel like Reese fucks around. I feel no. like they, when they're doing something, they're doing it well. Yeah. The type A, they're going to get it. I mean, like, and I know that term gets thrown around, but. Well, you were talking about two very, very smart people. I yeah. don't remember where Tina went to college, but I know Reese Witherspoon UVA. went to Stanford. Oh, between the two of us. Yeah, we know exactly. <laughs> we know exactly where everyone went to college. Isn't it sad sometimes what you know about celebrities? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to, I'll confess something. Oh, no. Um, this is like embarrassing to me. But like, I know what Charlize Theron's mother looks like, and I see her hiking all the time because we're on the same schedule. Oh, because Charlize Theron. Wait, who? Charlize? Or? No, her mom. Her You see her mom? I thought her who? mom lived in South Africa. No, her mom was in LA. Oh, okay. And I pass her three or four days a week. We hike our dogs at the same time. Mm -hmm. Say hello to her. We know each other because you pass the same person yeah. every day. Yeah. But I, I always in the back of my mind feel like bad about the fact that I know who she is. She has no idea that I know. Right. I'm never going to say like, oh, by the way, you know what I'm saying? Like there's no way in, but it's like, but maybe it's just, she does know that, you know, I don't think she does question. Yeah. How do you know it's her mom? You read about it. You saw a picture of her. I, this is going to sound so LA. I've seen them in a yoga class together. Oh, for God's sake. And then like, I just know, you know, I just yeah. know it's her, you know, <laughs> you're like, I saw them on a kale loose. <laughs> what the <laughs> hell? <laughs> fucking shoot me. That, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's a humiliating mm -hmm piece of intelligence to have or like to use. No, listen, I mean, I, I take an exercise class in New York and Greta Gerwig is often there. Yeah. And it's weird because the nature of the exercise class means that like, I have like, I like, what is it? What kind of class is bar? It? Oh, pure bar. Right. Yeah. So I like, I want to do that. It's so hard and it's so awesome. But I don't, but I don't do anything else. This is what's sort of weird. It's like this arbitrary, like, um, I don't enjoy group exercise. I don't enjoy group anything pretty much. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's face it. <laughs> right. um, but it's uh, more than like three people and some sort of fragile chemical bond breaks. And then I'm just <laughs> miserable. Um, but I just went from doing nothing at all. Nothing. I don't work out. I walk everywhere. Yeah. Um, I like let my gym membership lapse. It's really unhealthy actually. Um, but you know, it's getting nice out. I can run, but um, and then just went to do like, it's basically, I can't do calculus. And then I just decided to like, go for like a field's medal. Right. Like I can suddenly do like bar is the hardest thing to it's do. Real, whereas I won't go to spin or whatever the hell spinning. It drives me crazy. I don't know. I don't like people yelling at me. It's too loud. I don't like loud. I need peace. I also don't like peace <laughs> <laughs> on that note. Uh, it is so fun to talk with you. you too. I really appreciate you making time. Cause I know you're busy. I know you're traveling a lot. It's like, it's not, it's not nothing to schlep over here. So thank you for making the time. No problem. Congratulations thank you on the new collection. Congratulations on uh, the TV show stuff. Potential. Maybe maybe at some point there will be Sloan Crosley in LA. For like, you'll be one of those people who's like, yeah, I'm, you know. I I'm divide in, my time. I divide my time. As opposed to doing what I do now, which is divide my time between my bedroom and my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. 
Okay, guys, there you go. That's Sloane Crosley. Her new essay collection is called Look Alive Out There, available now from MCD Books. You can find her online at sloanecrosley.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at AskAnyone. Sloan Crosley, look alive out there. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. And thank you to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. There's another people app. Did you know that? It's free. Go get it. Put that app on your device. It's free. So I I got some more. I got some uh, questions. People tweeting at me. Brad, what do you consider your worst screw up? Oh, God. Like, where do I begin? It's from the Victoria. She then says, if you had to get rid of one body part, what would it be? I don't know. I like my left hand. Like, does it have to be a whole part? Can it just be a finger? Victoria also says, I know you have issues with the name Brad. If you could, what would you change your name to? Anything. I always liked the name Henry. It just seems so, like, simple, timeless. Victoria says, why are we here? I don't know. Gotta figure that out. Fast. I think we're here. What is, uh, what's the old Vonnegut line? To be the eyes, ears, conscience of the creator of the universe. That's a good answer. Well, guys, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I hope this has been a uh, nourishing podcast experience for you. I sure do like uh, talking to Sloane Crosley. She's fun. Why are we here? Why are we here? (laughs) I have no idea why I'm here. Why am I here? It is weird that we're here. I think we can all agree upon that. It's a strange thing to be. And yet, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I like, I mean, I like being here. I think it's better than not being here.